Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Welcome back to Coffee and Therapy, and it's everybody! Yay! Hey! Yay. There they are, hey. back in the building. Woo! Sarah, I'm gonna blow you up for a second. Sarah was so funny when we jumped on. She's like, "That episode that just came out, I don't remember recording that. Like, what's going on? Am I losing my mind?" And I then am. I'm like, "Sarah, you're you're not on it. <laughs> don't worry. You didn't. You're just not invited out for to a whole party. recording. You're not even invited. more evidence that I'm losing my mind. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I don't remember this at all. This is a great episode. <laughs> Which you haven't I listened have to yet. To don't lie." <laughs> Uh, well, not only is, you know, the crew all here and back together, we also have a special guest, Matthew Moody. Hi, everybody. Hello. Thanks was, for having oh, me. And Matthew dropped in the chat. Sometimes we tell the listeners what's in the chat. Matthew is on Be Real, and he said his Be Real just went off and asked if he could take a picture. I say yes. Courtney's is too. Courtney, you're going off too, right? Okay. Does everyone, <laughs> is everyone comfortable? You have to get Sarah's teeth. Okay, yeah, the teeth. Okay. No, are you comfortable with this? Okay. Oh, I love yeah. the consent. Here we go. You get to listen to us take a V real. Now you have to save it and send it to us. I don't know how V real works. I'm I don't so even know what I don't know what V real is. is. I, I didn't want to be real. If we're gonna ramble about things, this is one thing I'll ramble about. Okay, so V real <laughs> is a reactionary thing. It's it's a really beautiful concept, right? Because when we look at social media and some of the complaints about it over the last you know twenty years or whatever, I guess it's only been fifteen. The concern is that you're curating a perfect life, right? You're only showing the very best moments of your life, um, and you can spend time, hours, days, whatever, crafting the first perfect picture, perfect pose, all that kind of stuff. Be real is the antithesis of that. So the idea is that you're going to be real. And you get a notification once every 24 hours and you have two minutes to post a picture. So the idea is you have to get your phone out and you have to take a picture right then. And you don't get the time to like curate it. You can take a couple shots within that two minutes, um, but you're really not going to have the same thing like you could with Instagram and, and going out with a professional camera or whatever. Hmm. And you get publicly shamed if you post late. Like all of your friends know if you post late. So huh. it's, yeah, it's I- really trying to force that genuine kind of interaction. So. That's cool. Yeah. I pride myself on being extremely real and transparent on social media because authentic. Yeah, that's good. Life is a hot dumpster fire of a mess most of the time. And, I mean, uh, I guess that's a plug to follow Sarah's hot dumpster fire of a mess uh, on Instagram. <laughs> Can we or follow at least, at least coffee and therapy on Instagram, <laughs> which I always have to remember to put up front at coffee and therapy, T-H-E-R-A-T-E-A on Instagram. And you can follow all of our dumpster fires there, I guess. My life is is okay right now, so I don't want to jinx it. I'm like feeling pretty good about it. So yeah, um, yeah. Before we ramble too far, and I actually think social media is a good talking point for today. Matthew, who are you? I think our listeners need to know. And I might add, is it okay if I share your last name, Matthew? Yeah, sure. We're talking about mental health today, and Matthew's last name—I kid you not—is Moody. 
which I just think is fantastic. Like you found your life. It's like people who have the last name music. I'm like, if you're not a musician, you have to change your career because you were born to do that. So clearly Matthew was born to be moody and born to be in the mental health field. It's funny because so, I feel like a pretty mellow person too. So yeah. Matthew, Matthew un-moody. not moody. Is your moody yeah, there we go. Not- That's my middle name actually is not moody. Matthew not. not moody. Yep. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about yourself, Matthew Moody. I have met you a few times, and Matthew's super cool. When Courtney said she wanted you on the podcast, I was like, oh, heck yeah. Totally different vibe. A white, heterosexual, cisgendered man, groundbreaking for the podcast, crushing it. Um, I hope those are all the correct identifications. You tell us. Yeah, that works. I think you're in. <laughs> in the zone? Yeah. We're in the close to the room. Okay, so... Um, I, what I currently do, my, my formal training is a counselor. So I'm a licensed therapist in Arizona, um, but I don't do that. Um, so I've been working in mental health, uh, like community mental health, uh, and then more specifically crisis mental health. And I can talk about what that means um, for the last 14 years. So that's, that's really my background. Um, currently, my role is overseeing a crisis hotline. Um, we do two states, Arizona and Oklahoma. We're taking about 40,000 calls per month total. Um, Our crisis line is the largest per volume crisis line in the country. Um, So Arizona is pretty forward thinking on its its crisis system. And I I can talk about that stuff too. But, um, you know, I oversee like daily operations and some of the clinical stuff that goes on um, on the crisis line. And then additionally to that, um, we started doing a lot of uh, work with local police departments, um, specifically Phoenix and, and a couple other ones here in Arizona. Um, it, it really kind of identifying what types of 911 calls can be transferred over to the crisis line, right? Um, and so a big part of my job now is, is probably about half my job is consulting with police departments. And I run a team of people that actually sit inside 911 centers. Um, and are kind of like consulting and coaching these people on, on which calls to send over. And we do a lot of training. So I'm actually, I'm excited actually to go to Calgary in two weeks because uh, Calgary, Canada uh, wanted to uh, have me come up there. So I get to go up there and show them uh, how that goes. So I think, I think that's most of it. I spent about 20 years in a heavy metal band and toured around the country. Um, I don't know what else. Courtney, what am I missing? Am I missing anything? Good? I was going to say, so Matthew's a music therapist. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of people wouldn't find the type of music I played is... Uh... Well, it's so interesting because from a neuroscience perspective, people who enjoy heavy metal music have different brain structures and mm-hmm. different like limbic system reactions to that music. And I find it so interesting. Mm. And working with neurodivergent individuals, I see a lot of the overlap in the research of like, diffuser tensor imaging of like where the brain areas light up mm-hmm. on those sort of like mappings of people who listen to heavy metal and people who have overconnected shorter synaptic brains. Yeah. There's a lot of those areas that are lighting up the same. I know I've started to dive into that. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Listeners well, into, know, no, I'm, I'm with you. So if you look at um, specifically drummers and like jazz and heavy metal, where it's very technical and like you're pushing kind of like the music theory type of stuff that you do, their brains operate totally different too. So they're able to like bring multiple different ideas together and like format them together. And then, you know, my drummer was playing and singing at the same time. So 
I don't know how he did it. Yeah. Those extended shared parallel networks, man. That's the basis of music therapy. There it's it right there. To put it uh, simply. <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it simple. But Matthew did ask Courtney a question before I chimed in. No, it's okay. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, there's nothing else, Matthew. I think that's about it. Besides Perfect. Look at that. fantastic human. Killer, yeah. killer intro there. And a cool guy. I think, yep. Matthew, what I'd love to start with is uh, you said I'd say more about that. What is crisis mental health? Because I think that was the activator for bringing you on here. Is sure. We did an episode of um, we had a reference to death by suicide and just kind of some of the rise that we're seeing, not only in the neurodiversity community, but just in mm-hmm. the world right now and those challenges. Mm-hmm. And that's where crisis mental health can intervene. So I yeah. think you have a really unique perspective on what that looks like and what you do every day and see. Yeah, I think it's kind of like one of the newer frontiers. Uh, you know, you talk about neurodivergent treatment and I think crisis treatment, it's been around for, you know, ever, but I think it's one of the newer frontiers on things to really help as far as like societally helping mental health, right? So the way that we define a crisis in the lines that we run, and I think if you look, we'll talk about 988 later, um, <clears throat> the same way that they do this um, and kind of conceptualize it is a crisis is anytime you're unable to cope with your life situation, right? And there's there's a lot of beauty and benefit in defining it that way because one, it's self-defined. So the crisis lines that you call should not say this isn't a crisis, we can't help you because it's a crisis to you. And so obviously someone feeling suicidal is going to be a crisis, right? But, you know, there's so many things that I think would fit under that. We talk about domestic violence and you have that moment where violence potentially happens, whether it's physical or emotional or, you know, all those sorts of things. But there is a crisis in that moment, right? There is a mental health crisis in there. If we talk about someone who's, you know, having substance use issues, if we talk about even death and grief, right? So uh, we get a lot of times where someone's pet is like their closest um, social support and it's the most important thing to them and they lose that um, or a a close family member too. Um, that's a traumatic event, right? And that can spin you into a crisis. So it's it's a very broad idea of what a crisis is. But yeah, really, anytime you're in distress because you're unable to handle the situations that you're in. Um, so I've had people that are like homeless and on substances, um, and you know, having severe, significant issues. And then one time, I had a guy that had a large company, and he was experiencing suicidal thoughts because his company didn't make enough money that quarter. And so it's, it's hard as a clinician, especially working in crisis work where a lot of the people are like low income and to hear that, but that was that person's crisis and that person's crisis is just as valid and we still have to meet them where they're at with that. Um, and so when we look at kind of the structure of how to handle crisis in a fully formed crisis system, you would have a crisis line um, and then you would have crisis mobile teams that go out and visit people. And then you would have brick and mortar facilities where someone can see a provider 24-7. Um, and a big part of it is reducing access or barriers to care. So it's, you know, for, for Arizona and Oklahoma, it is free service. Um, you don't have to have insurance. You don't have to, you know, it's just you call, you get help. And, and that's really where it's going, which is great because um, it wasn't going that way. Probably six years ago, we were still trying to, like, explain to people why this is important. Um, but people are catching on to it now. So it's, it's an exciting time to be uh, in this space. I have a follow-up because I think we all made the same face of like, that's amazing because it's free, accessible, we're removing the barriers. Financially, how is that happening and why isn't it happening other places? Yeah, and I know you'll know the answer, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it, it gets really in the weeds. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to put it out of the weeds. I think 
I think the big portion of it, I think, is conceptualization about what a crisis is and um, the cost savings. I think that's what people are really catching on to because when you look at an ER visit or a fire truck or a police officer going out, I think a police officer just, just to go and leave, like not even being on scene for any amount of time, it's like 200 bucks on average. Um, a fire truck can be anywhere from 500 to 1,000 bucks. ERs are like 500 bucks a day, you know? So when you look at that and we can resolve a potential crisis over the phone, our line does about 75 to 80% resolution over the phone. So we don't have to send anybody out. We don't have to engage anybody. Um, that's pennies on the dollar. And, you know, when we look at kind of like code of ethics for counseling and social work, we always want to have the least, um, least invasive care, right? So if we can resolve that over the phone or a phone conversation or, or chatting or texting or whatever, um, that's a big win. Uh, but then the mobile teams that go out, um, I think, I, I think we were figuring it out. And it's, it's, it's significantly cheaper. I think it's like a hundred bucks or something like that for like an hour of care. And then the drop-off facilities, like if you're just, you know, focused on um, psychiatric care or like crisis care, you can, you can solve those problems a lot cheaper because if you go to an emergency room, if you're feeling like suicidal and you go to an emergency room, um, you know, they have to operate, they use a medical model earlier, but they have to do the thing that ERs do. Um, and then that's going to lead to a lot of things that aren't necessarily, you know, necessary. So you don't need a full physical exam, right? If you're feeling suicidal. Now the drop-off facilities should, you know, the brick and mortar facilities should, I should use a better word, uh, urgent response centers is what people call them sometimes, like urgent mental health, urgent cares, like there's all sorts of names for them. But when you go there, <clears throat> um, they'll just do a quick checklist. It's like, are you bleeding significantly? You got chest pains? No, okay, we're good. And then if they are, they have a nurse there and they can just check them real quick and say, yes, this person needs to go or no, they don't. Um, so I think, I think a lot of it is setting up the funding structures for it. Um, I think um, like awareness of how important it is, is important. Um, and so I think, I think that it's really funny how much the billing portion of it is, is important. Like how do you fund this? So in Arizona, it's actually funded through our Medicaid system. Um, a lot of other places kind of piecemeal it together. So, um, you know, I've been working with the city of Chicago actually, and they're starting a couple I would of say, yeah, stuff. it's launching big here. I have a couple <clears throat> of friends who are in different programs that are bringing it out for listeners who don't know. I live in the greater Chicago area. I don't know if I've ever said that before. I feel like I must've, um, I have a couple friends who are part of it and it's really interesting, but it sounds like no shade to Chicago that it's pretty messy here right now. <laughs> if I'm not wrong. Chicago is something I can ramble about for a long time, but <laughs> Chicago's wild. Okay, so for Chicago, I'll just go off on this tangent for a moment. The cool, the crazy thing about Chicago is that the city council has, it's either, it's 50 different city council members, okay? And so when I was trying to help them with their, their Chicago police um, and the Department of Behavioral Health started up like crisis mobile teams, which is incredible. Um, the program's going really well. But like you have to like thread the needle with 50 different people politically because you're going to have like hard, hard right. And then they have like legitimate communists and socialists on on the city council. So like how do you thread that needle together? Um, <clears throat> but when you look at this kind of care, it's it's a win win, especially if you're doing law enforcement diversion. You're saving cop hours. You're saving and, and you're really getting the correct professional for that situation in front of the person that needs to. So it's a win win for everybody. I think the financials are so critical. We've talked about that on other episodes. That's how I really work on selling our business is how much money can you save by doing mm -hmm. this? Yeah. Why is this important? What's the value for your dollar? What's the yeah. bang for your buck of coming here? And I think 
that point is so important for anyone listening who's like, I want to be on the frontier of making this happen around me, of giving those facts, giving those dollars and cents so that people understand how it can save them money. It's going to be an initial investment, but then what's the overall benefit? And we're seeing too, with the least invasive care, similar to like least restrictive environment in accessible education is how can I intervene before that happens and our inpatient facilities let's say we didn't intervene are maxed like mm-hmm. we don't even have from a human ethical standpoint i don't we don't have anywhere for them to go yep. if you can't call and get support in an accessible way there's no beds or right. at least there wasn't in all of the heart of covid and maybe some are just opening up but then add pediatrics add neurodiversity and pediatrics onto that there's yeah. not even facilities that provide that care yeah, and, and it's such a specialized thing, too, because, you know, we, we try to do a lot of work and training on uh, helping people with autism, but over the phone, you know, it's, it's hard to have that interaction. And then, you know, if we're going out for somebody that's like in a group home and the person calling us doesn't know much about them, we might walk in there and talk too loud. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're having an issue or like, <clears throat> I don't know, these are some examples that have come up, but like if they're if they really need like their iPad to like self-soothe. And then someone's like, you should get off that iPad. All of a sudden you're ripping away the thing that's going to help that kid. Right. So like there's, and then that's just like one, you know, sub uh, population that's for every different population. Right. Right. Different line of things. Yeah. Everyone's nodding when it becomes pensive. It tends to be me just talking. So I apologize. Listeners are going to just get a lot of me talking. (laughs) Noah, Sarah, Courtney. No, I have a question. I have a few things that was coming up. Matthew. Um, were you, were you a therapist when the crisis team company, whatever existed here in Arizona, or were you kind of like part of watching that unfurl and, follow up to that question like how long did that process take um you know for other cities states that are looking into doing something like that because it is so needed and I mean Chicago when when you shared with me you know that you were partnering with Chicago I was so excited because I have family in Illinois and you know a lot of them could benefit from supports like this so I mean how long like does this sort of thing take to get going oh. um it's <clears throat> a good question so <clears throat> And I, I think we'll end up talking about my career path too, because I think that's helpful. <clears throat> um, when I, I actually got my job at the crisis line so I could go get my master's and still work full time because at the crisis line, we're 24 seven and I have a flexible schedule that would allow me to go to school during the day. Um, Arizona is actually like the gold standard in the country about how a crisis system should work. Um, and this system has existed since the early nineties. Um, so there was a very unique set of circumstances that, that led to this crisis system existing here in Arizona. Um, I don't think typically outside of this, basically what happened is, um, someone sued the state because there wasn't enough mental health care they felt, and they felt like the state had an obligation to make sure that people's needs get met 24, seven, 365. And so it kind of was born out of that. Um, and developed over the years. And so the Supreme Court of Arizona said, you absolutely do have to, for our constitution, you have to provide this. And there was actually this kind of like, a, they call it a court monitor. So there was a judge that checked in like every six months, I think, and just saw how the system was going and making wow. sure they were doing the right thing. Um, so it's a very unique um, set of circumstances. I think with the right know-how, so Oklahoma, we started working on that February or March, and we had 
that system's humming along very, very well now. It's, it's really incredible. Um, they have mobile teams statewide. They have so many of those like stabilization units, the drop-off centers. They have great like follow-up services. It's so impressive. Um, so I, I think if you really if you really pushed it hard, you you can get it done in probably about six months. But ironing out like all the um, issues that come up, I think that's probably going to take a year or two to, to really get it. But we're taking calls and and mobile teams are going out and we're providing a good level of service. So um, I'd say that. Now, getting Medicaid or getting the state to have the motivation to make this a priority, that's different. Yeah. Okay. But one but, to two years isn't bad. No, really. For as far no. as implementing and getting things going, that no. feels hopeful Yeah. for a lot of different yeah. places. I was expecting to hear on a longer, a, a longer time for that. No, getting it running, um, getting it running, you know, we, we as the industry of crisis mental health have gotten fairly good at that. Um, but it's the larger societal change in thinking. Um, it's the change in kind of like clinician thinking sometimes on this. Um, it, you know, and this is, this is something I'm passionate about. I went and got my master's degree in counseling and I was teaching my professors how to handle a kind of like a crisis situation. So I actually would teach classes about that. And I was, I, I'm still to this day frustrated with the fact that there is a better crisis. Um, they don't teach us enough about how to handle a crisis in those situations. Um, so there's still a long way to go uh, with crisis mental health. Um, but we make crazy progress. It's, it's, it's awesome. So it in a, like it could be, it's sorry, Noah, go ahead. In a, in a state where there are progressive thinkers, right? It sounds like that's one of the biggest obstacles that you're saying, you know, you have to sort of be in that right headspace. You have to want to put in the time and the effort and know how to lobby with Medicaid and things like that. So let's, let's say you have all of those ducks in a row. Is there a central contact that someone who perhaps is in a state that they feel is a really progressive, you know, part of the state and they know the right person who would ultimately be able to spearhead that, where would they go to look for resources? Would they would they ultimately contact someone like you as a consultant to come and, and sort of help build a program? What is what is that next best step? Well, so we we as an organization do a lot of outreach and um, trying to help that. So we're helping people. And we're international now. So like Scotland came to Arizona, Edinburgh, Scotland came and, and copied the crisis system. Um, and now with 988 coming out, there's so much attention to this and everyone wants to have uh, help with this. So we're really doing a lot of consulting um, out there and, you know, there's conferences and stuff like that. So um, I, I would say, I think every, almost every major municipality and, and most of the states in the country are really focused on this right now. So I think there is like a lot of momentum. Great. Hmm. If so, the people, I guess each crisis management program would be maybe different. But mm -hmm. for the one that you're speaking of specifically, Matthew, are the people who are working these crisis hotlines, are they professionals, licensed professionals? Um, like, are there different levels? I, I remember I worked at a crisis hotline when I was in college. So obviously I was not a licensed professional. There were very, very strict um, like guidelines in terms of what we could say and what we couldn't say. It was, a, it was very scripted. It was very helpful service. I, I'm glad that it was there, but um, we obviously were not licensed professionals. We were college kids. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily think that um, a license is necessary. And I think actually, like I was just talking about that, 
you know, they didn't teach us how to handle crisis. I think it could be detrimental uh, because you're tra- taking someone and training them as a therapist or a social worker to take 10 to 20 sessions to work on an issue and solve it. Right. And there are, there are like therapy modalities that are like, it's like brief solution focused and that one's really powerful in a crisis situation. But um, for, for our crisis line, and I think this is best practice, we um, typically try to find someone with a bachelor's degree uh, and some experience in the field. Um, or someone who's worked in the field for a number of years. Um, and the, the way I kind of think about it is like, if, if you call 911 and you're having chest pains or a heart attack, like a proctologist is technically a higher level of training, right? They're a medical doctor, but I don't want that person. I don't want a neurologist. I don't want a proctologist. I want the dude that sits there and does the, what are those things called? The, the pads. And like, yeah. I don't want a doctor that doesn't do that all day. I want the guy in the back of the van that does that all day. Um, and so I think the same way about crisis workers, you want people that are used to working in that very narrow space and working with it. And, you know, you're not going to pull out gestalt therapy in the middle of a crisis situation. It's not effective. It's not going to be helpful. Um, and so I really, I don't think that that's needed now. For, so for our line, that's, that's our standard of care that we do on our lines. Um, for the 988 in general, there is a minimum level of training that has to happen. Um, but there's, there's basically, I think there's like 150 or 200 local crisis centers throughout the country that do this, that, that answer 988 calls. Um, and so they're all going to have different standards. There are lines that are volunteers. There are lines that are like highly level staff. There are some that I, that have just licensed professionals only. Um, I just, uh, it's, so it's, it's all over, it's all over the place. And is there like a hierarchy for yours? So if someone gets the call and they're like, oh, I need to up chain this, this is beyond my scope, or I don't have the skill set in it. Like, is there a way to move that in a different direction, I guess, too? Yeah, that's a model that some lines use. Um, so like you have higher trained staff or licensed staff, and then if it gets too acute, you can you can bump it up. Um, our model's a little bit different. Um, our model is that we train everyone to answer any type of call, right? Uh, we never want to transfer someone if we don't have to. We never want to have to put somebody on hold if we don't have to. This is the hardest moment of their life. And so we really stress our training. So we, we, on top of the type of people that we hire, the type of experience we hire, um, you know, we're also doing two to three months of training. So like mentoring, um, staffing every call. And then, so we have this crisis specialist, right? That's it. That's the position. And then we have licensed staff 24 seven available. And part of what they're doing is listening to calls and they're available to coach um, and provide staffing on really difficult, complicated calls. Um, so that's kind of how we bridge the gap. We do have licensed staff. Um, those licensed staff are specializing in crisis as well. And then whoever answers the phone can handle any type. So it's, you know, our crisis specialist can handle someone who's like overwhelmed or having a panic attack all the way up to I have a gun in my hand. Um, and I think there is a lot of benefit to having that model that way. Yeah. I mean, even that thing you, you said it of, we're not going to transfer someone. We're not going to hang up on you mm-hmm. because it's vital, right? Like yeah. this is truly life or death of mm-hmm. me in this moment. And I don't think I would have thought about it that way. Um, yeah. And I love that you have people listening in. So you, they are also supported in that moment because mm-hmm. that's so hard for them, even with months of training and exceptional personalities and hiring the right people in that moment, you have to be so in control of self that yep. knowing you have another person that's also there supporting you and ready to support in addition yeah. to you supporting the person who's calling in a crisis. I think that's incredible. I feel yeah. like that's one of the areas 
why therapists leave the field of being active therapists. And this might take us into kind of our next, how Matthew got into this work, but it's so overwhelming all the time, right? We're overworked, we're underpaid, our system's failing us, our system's failing our clients, and there isn't anyone to lean on and you don't feel like people have space for you. And you can hold space for yourself, but push comes to shove eventually. Um, So I guess what you, you were saying, you got your master's and we're working for the crisis center. So this seems to be kind of the narrative from baseline there. So what brought you to this journey? So I got my degree in psychology and that was the first time in my life that I was like really, um, inspired to learn and grow in a, in a, in a academic setting. Like I always like research history, and, you know, um, would, would do that sort of stuff. But psychology was the first time, you know, I was always like a C student. Psychology was the first time that I was like, Oh my God, like, this is awesome. I'm so excited about this and would start, you know, getting really good grades in it. And so when I got done with school, I honestly just went and applied for a bunch of jobs. The first one I got was uh, a case manager for seriously mentally ill people is what we call SMI. Um, those are people it's typically considered that they're disabled by their mental health condition, right? Um, so they, they do get disability if they qualify um, for that level of diagnosis, I guess is the way to put it, but that level of care. Um, so I did that for about four years, and that's, you know, working with really ill people. Um, so I got to see a lot of people in the most extreme um, impact from mental health conditions. Um, I'm sure I have tons of fun stories for that one. But... So then I, I was sitting there and I was having these inter, in, interactions with people and I <clears throat> I wanted to get a, better, a higher level degree because I wanted to find a way to help people more and more effectively, I guess is a better way to say that. <clears throat> and I wasn't getting that um, as the case manager. I was doing a whole lot of home visits. I was doing hospital discharge plans. I was um, writing up treatment plans. And that just really wasn't what I wanted to do. I really had these beautiful moments where I'd be with somebody and in that moment with them and they made some progress and seeing, you know, someone make a little bit of progress, like get a job, you know, that they haven't had a job in 20 years after they had a psychotic break or they've been using substances for so long and they're sober for six months, you know, those sorts of things. Like those are the really beautiful moments that, that inspired me. And so I was like, I'm going to go get uh, my degree in counseling because I want to be in the room with them. I want to have that intimate connection with them and help them, um, you know, find their way through it, right? Like to, to, to learn and grow in the way that they're going to. So just to help them facilitate that. <clears throat> While I was getting my master's degree, I got my friend work at the crisis line I still work at. And he, um, he was like, you should come over here. And so it really alleviated all of the things I didn't like about being a case manager uh, so there's no social work really it's it's you're sitting on the phone and you're having a direct inter- interaction with that person and then you know when i'm talking about wanting to help people and make big changes or like grow there's a really beautiful moment <clears throat> in a crisis because that person's called for help in the worst moment of their life and they're motivated right you can have such an impact on that person um in the long run for being there in the right way well, I was going to school, you know, you, in my school, we had 900 hours of direct counseling, right? And um, I found myself as it went along, I, I didn't want to do direct practice anymore. Um, I found um, that doing that consistently, like sitting in a counselor's office, um, 10 hours straight, eight hours straight, and then having back-to-back clients, that really burned me out. And, you know, it was really, it was really kind of like a, 
a difficult time for me because I would find myself getting dis disinterested or bored in these sessions. And I was like, God, like if the ther or if the client saw me like that and was like, oh my God, my therapist is bored of me, that's like the worst, right? Like that would not be good. <clears throat> so I got a supervisor position at my job and started looking around at things and, and seeing what my friends were doing. And I was like, wow. I can have the same impact or similar impact by improving how systems work, right? And so when my friends and I looked at the, the mental health system in general, we're like, it's, it's actually funny, my best my best friend, um, he's an attorney, does a lot of work um, around the world now um, with kind of like involuntary evaluations for people. Um, and, you know, we had made this pact when we were like 22 that we were going to like fix everything. And so now like we're working in systems. Um, and helping helping things like that. So as I continued in that, like when I was supervising, I'm like, wow, I really like overseeing this whole crisis line and making sure that staff are supported and that the overall quality is good. And then I was like, wow, I want more of that. So I moved into a manager position and now a director position. Um, and then I'm on the board of directors for another nonprofit that's an advocacy and um, uh, education for mental health um, in Arizona as well. So I'm 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 getting to use the experience I had like on the ground with a lot of, you know, uh, decision makers and policy makers, you know, um, police chiefs, mayors, um, the head of the Medicaid systems or the heads of the Medicaid system. Um, you know, I'm, I'm getting to be in the room and kind of expressing what it's like to do this work and what it's where, where people are at. Um, and it's just really become like my passion and it's become, my motivation and it's like a core facet of, of who I am, right? Um, is, is doing this type of work. So that's, that's kind of the whole progression. And I guess just speaking to clinicians in general, like don't feel that you got a certain degree is going to force you into doing a certain type of work. Um, so my degrees in counseling, um, you know, there's, you don't need to have a business degree to be in leadership or administration. It is a different skill set um, that you have to learn and grow with. Um, but just don't, don't ever feel like you're forced and locked into doing one thing, because if I was still counseling, I'd be a very unhappy person. Um, I would love, you know, helping people and, and providing, um, quality care, but I just wouldn't, I wouldn't be satisfied and I wouldn't be like fulfilled, I guess. Yeah. And when you said <clears throat> it's so inspiring listening to you too, Matthew, because I think I resonate so much with like your mission, though mine is in a slightly different field, mm -hmm. but very much adjacent. I think Noah and I smiled at the exact same moment when you were like, I want to change the system because mm -hmm. I, this is something I've been really battling with myself lately of the work I do in my sessions day to day, as much as I love them and I love the people I work with and I love the work I do, me providing direct care changes 0.0001% of the global world, right? And if we can affect the systems and create new programs and new initiatives like this, that can change 10%. Yeah. I would love to say hundreds of percents, <laughs> but you know, let's say like 10% compared to 0. 0.0001 is nothing. And Noah and I have been going back and forth on this program and this thing we want to do together. And I think, you know, I'm just gonna try to channel your motivation and energy so that we can follow through on that a little more. Because systems are such the barrier to care mm -hmm. for people, regardless of mental health or neurodiversity or any uh, just medical health in general. The mm -hmm. system that we have is the number one barrier. So if we can change that, we can change access on a, a global level. Yeah. Um, so I, it's just really wonderful hearing you talk about it and like 
absorbing that inspiration through the computer of like, okay, yes, you're right. We can make a difference because I have been feeling down on that. And I think a lot of therapists, like you're saying, if you're feeling that way, there's options. Like you can take your degree and, and push it forward and push the envelope and find that new outlet. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, it, there's so many things that you can do, but my, you know, my friend that helps um, the attorney, he's, he's passed a lot of legislation in Arizona. Um, and it was really just building the relationships with legislators and explaining why this needed to happen and drafting the legislation and then, you know, working the whole process. So it's not like he had like formal government training or anything like that. He was just like, how do I write a law? And like, how do we get a law passed? And, and those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, there is that work out there that is that ability, you know, in a number of different ways to impact systems. So I found my niche and it's uh, really fun and exciting. Uh, but there's a lot of different ways to do that work. Um, and, and I will say this too. I, I don't ever want it to, I don't want to ever sound like I don't think frontline clinicians are important. I think they are the most important. Um, but you also have to have someone that's making sure that we are doing a good job, that the funding is there to make sure that we can pay the people to do a good job um, and just, you know, making sure we're delivering really good care. And that's a lot of work in itself. Um, so you it, just even phone systems. If you knew how much time I've spent on phone systems, I never thought I'd be running a call center. <laughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> so, yeah. um, and there's so many pieces to, to everything that I've done uh, that you wouldn't expect. I never would have expected being here. Uh, but yeah, uh, you're right. And so that's that's kind of my philosophy too, is you need both sides of it. And my brain, for whatever reason, is more effective and more satisfied by doing this type of work mm-hmm. um, than it is doing direct work. So Noah agrees. Mm-hmm. Noah and I both mm-hmm. agree. We, we talk about this a lot. Um, and I love direct service, right? For p- parents of the kids I work with that are listening, because I know you do. I love the work I get to do with your kids. Do not get me wrong. I love supporting my team of seven, eight clinicians. I love that we're expanding that. But I also, 100%, my brain operates so much in the business level, in the systematic level, in that change level. Um, and it's a good reminder that that's not a bad thing. That's a powerful tool we can use to change those things. Right. I would love to kind of circle back to something that we continue to talk about. I would love to dive in a little bit deeper into the 988, um, if you guys don't mind, um, really because I know yeah. that this just launched the beginning of this year, right? Yeah, and, and a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah, yeah. exactly, because I'm still trying to like wrap my head around, like, Matthew, you said you guys take over 40,000 calls per month, like, is that like 988 calls from all across the country? Is that just in Arizona? Like what it, What exactly, like how do you guys support 988? And what is this looking like in other states? What is it even, you know, what is, what is it? Yeah, so 988 is an attempt, not attempt, it is the solution to a problem that's been there for a long time, right? Mental health has basically not had good access. It's, it's hard to get the treatment. And then uh, as a side effect, our society really forced mental health treatment on the first responders. It should never have been there. Um, you know, I do training with police all day. I did one today and they're like, yeah, like we shouldn't do that. Um, but we forced it upon it, uh, upon them uh, unfairly. And so 988's an idea is a, is a goal to uh, create kind of a parallel system to how the 911 system works, right? So 
you call a three-digit phone number, you are connected with somebody that can specialize in what's happening. You can get a mobile response a lot of times and get somebody to come out there. Um, and, and you're getting that specialized type of help. Um, and so 988 used to be called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, so Logic, the rapper Logic had that song that kind of blew up, I don't know, God, that was probably four or five years ago. With the, 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 the title of the song was just the phone number for that. Um, but it's hard, you know, a 10-digit phone number can be a little bit more difficult than a three-digit dialing number, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's a chance to rectify that, uh, that part of society. And um, yeah, it's, it's for the entire country. So basically anyone who's in the United States um, can call 988 and it will attempt to route you to a localized call center. Um, local call centers are best practice because they understand the community that they're in. So it's, it's, it's great that the system's trying to lean on that. If there isn't a local call center available, like they're all, on all the phone calls, they can take our phone calls, then it bounces to a national center. So there's 12 national backup centers. Um, our 40,000 calls is not, I don't think, typical for 988. Um, so we have had these long established crisis line phone numbers since the early 90s. So a chunk of our volume is from that. Um, so that's probably about 35,000 calls is just through our traditional crisis line, the, the previous. We're taking about I'd say it's like 4,000 in Oklahoma, 988 calls, and then in Arizona, it's probably about four or 5,000 a month right now. Um, so utilization is going to go up over time um, as, as people get used to this. But um, yeah, it, the rollout for it was in early July, and um, you know, there's more centers coming on every day um, to, to support this. Um, and there was, you know, it, was, it was a law enacted by Congress saying we have to have a three-digit dialing for this. Um, and so this is the reality of that is, you know, the government, the federal government passed this law. It's technically under the FCC. Um, and there's a lot of like really brilliant people working on the system to get it working. So uh, it, it's just, yeah, it's basically you can call 98 and you're in a crisis, someone's going to help you. Um, and the, the types of help are going to vary. Sometimes there aren't mobile units in some rural areas um, or, you know, Chicago just started their own. But, um, you know, there's not always these mobile teams that are available or drop off facilities that are available, but at least you got someone on the phone that can say, here are your options and help you calm down and provide support to you. Yeah. Can you call on behalf of someone else in crisis as well? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I assumed yes, but especially for parents listening, I know in all of the Facebook groups and community organizations that I'm a part of, a lot of parents have these moments where their child is in crisis and yep. they're the one that needs to help. And they don't know what to do and they don't know who to call. So I think that's amazing to remind our families that they yeah. can call that number. They can get that access. And it, it sounds like my follow-up question to that you kind of answered. Someone will help direct them to those resources in that moment and process yeah. with them through that. Yeah, so that, that's a, that leads to a good point. What does a crisis phone call look like? Okay, so when you call in, um, when, you, when, they, when the call is answered, on 988, you're typically not going to be transferred away from that person. But the first thing they're going to do is a risk assessment. And so what we're really going to assess is, um, are you in a safe environment right now? Um, are you having thoughts of hurting or killing yourself or anybody else? And then we're going to identify if they have means, plan, and intent to hurt themselves. Okay. So if they have all of those things, so a classic example is, I want to kill myself. I have a gun in my hand. You know, if they have means, plan, and intent to do that right now, that's the highest level of acuity we deal with. <clears throat> um, less than that situation, um, you know, the, the, it, 
even if they're the highest acuity, what we're going to try to do is uh, what we call reduce access to lethal means. So we can say, can you put the gun down and walk outside so we can talk? Um, so that, that's kind of what we're doing there. The next step of what we're going to do is, is try to, you know, really hear what's going on. If they need de-escalation, we're going to help them get to a place where they're, you know, more in um, your parasympathetic nervous system, like you're not in fight or flight anymore, so that we can have a conversation um, and kind of build a relationship with them so that they understand that someone's there and someone cares. Um, after that, we're going to explore what led up to this crisis, because typically when someone's in a crisis, it's something that builds up over a long period of time, right? So we kind of want to have like a holistic kind of approach and figure out what's going on. Um, and then once we have, you know, done those things, then we're going to start looking at what a resolution is. So crisis care, I always like to say, is your ambulance or your emergency room, right? We are not there to solve your long-term problems, and it's actually detrimental to look in, like to get your mental health care continuously through a crisis line um, when you should be referred to a, 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 someone that can provide like long-term outpatient care. Um, <clears throat> so that that's really like the anatomy of a crisis call and the process of it. I love that. I was taking that into, I think something you said that's so vital there is that the purpose is not for this to be your therapy. Mm -hmm. This is an acute situation where you are working on prevention and successful de-escalation and then referring to care for that long-term care. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's the part where humanity misses too, is that then we need to also support someone's mental health after we've successfully transitioned them from crisis and knowing that it continues to be a journey. Because I know I see that in the world of pediatrics with families where they might have managed an escalated situation and then they sort of let it. Oh, it's gone. It's done. Yeah. 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 And then we don't acknowledge that this might be a thing forever, right? Right. We, We need to keep an eye on this. We need to have support. We need to have that fallback. Um, and what, I guess, do you see that follow through look like? Like, do we have, are there data? I'm sure if there are, you have it on what percent return to the crisis line, right? Or who is return callers versus care users? Yeah. Um, recidivism for crisis, it, it, there's a number of different factors. I don't think I could actually give you stats on it. I think if if we're doing our job well as a crisis system, it's it's rare that we would need it. Um, they're rare that they would call back. But if you have someone that's experiencing like psychosis or command hallucinations, um, I know we're getting really <laughs> in the weeds on things. But like if you've got someone like that and they don't have good wraparound services, um, you know it's it's there and they know that's where they need help. They they will. But one of the things we do is um, every portion of the crisis system I've talked about. So the crisis line, like the mobile teams and the other portions, we are doing a, a follow-up within 72 hours. So we're attempting to outreach them and say, hey, things are calmer now. What's going on? What do you need um, to, to get you out of that? Um, and a lot of what we're going to do is, is try to set them up with like a counseling appointment. We're going to get them to an outpatient provider that can help them, or we're going to get them to a hospital. And then that hospital discharge plan should be, how do we get that service for you? Oh, that's great. That exactly answers that. I mean, this sounds incredible. And I don't understand why I didn't know more about it. So I'm glad that you mapped out all those steps so people can actually hear what this looks like. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions when we hear a government plan of, Mm -hmm. oh, call this new number, right? Arizona having that consistency of care. And that's why you have such that influx of calls and people know it exists and they have Mm -hmm. trust in that system. Right. I think people need to understand what the timeline looks like so they can build trust in the system. And like Mm -hmm. you've said, 
we won't go into a deep discussion on this because this is a polarizing topic, but law enforcement has been forced to -hmm. take on these things and there's a lack of trust in that care. And I think, you, you know, our world within the U.S. is having a hard time trusting that 988 would be different. So hearing what those steps look like from your system, which isn't all 988, but knowing there's someone who's trained, there's someone who's listening, who's de-escalating and supporting you, going to follow up, going to refer you and give you resources, and it's Mm -hmm. accessible to you. I hope we can build trust in this system because we need it. Yeah. And we can talk about the police stuff all you want. Like I love that stuff. And I think, you know, everyone I work with in the law enforcement world gets it and they would agree, you know, with the mental health stuff that it shouldn't be on them. They are not well trained for it, if trained at all. Um, and they're not the right professional for that situation. Right. Um, and, and so we, we can talk about that. It's, that's my passion project on top of all this stuff. So I, I would love to talk about all that. Yeah. Stuff. I'm okay diving into it. I was just like, we're going into waters. I know can be, uh, dicey, but I think that perspective too of you working with mm-hmm. the people who were put into that situation that was unrealistic and unexpected for them, you yeah. can really speak to that firsthand knowledge of how they're feeling with these changes and how they felt being in those situations. Yeah, so there's like a typical, this will frustrate me to no end, there's a type of call that police departments across the country called juveniles disturbing or. Um, I say this every freaking day and I can't remember right now. Juvenile disturbing or incorrigible juvenile. These are very old terms. Um, But a lot of what this looks like on those types of calls is a kid that's acting out. They're refusing to go to school or they're yelling at the parents. The parents don't know how to like help them with their behavior. Right. And so police get called out on this every day. And so you've got a, a child who is not experiencing emotional safety. And then you're going to bring in an authority figure that has a weapon and a bulletproof vest to try to address that. And cops hate those calls. They don't like them. I mean, there's there's some that are really good and could be great clinicians and can really sit there and do that. But that ends up being a two-hour social work call now, right? Because what led up to that? You know, does the child have untreated mental health issues? Are they getting bullied? Um, is there some potential abuse happening? Um, did the parents just not have good parenting skills? Did they not have a good education background? Does the parent have a mental health condition? Are they just really stressed out? So these are all things that a social worker, a counselor, a crisis worker is going to be able to assess and see those sorts of things. Or an officer isn't trained now, right? Um, so those calls, you know, it's very easy for me to tell law enforcement, like you can send those types of calls over. They always light up and they're like, oh my God, that's going to be awesome. Um, and so it's very easy to get them to send those types of calls. Um, but when you look at, there's other things too. So like people feeling suicidal, um, you know, Law enforcement and first responders, one of their primary goals is to preserve life, right? And um, the tool they have to preserve life is to send an officer out there and then the officer has a certain set of tools and skill sets they can use. But what are the options for for an officer, right? You can charge someone and arrest them, potentially. Um, You can try to find some community resource. And then in some places, you can force someone into treatment. So those are your three options. And, you know, when you take the, the chance of arrest off the table, it's a lot easier to have a good clinical interaction with somebody, right? Um, so it's just a different way of thinking about things. Um, but like suicide calls, um, they're very careful about those. They don't want to send people that are unsafe over to the crisis line. They have to build that trust, right? They need to trust that that crisis is not going to do that. So a lot of the work that I do every day is just like reinforcing, like, no, 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 we got this. Like, here's this. You know, there's a, there's a smaller city in Arizona called Tempe. It's about 160,000 people. 
they send us a hundred calls ish a month. Um, and only one of those ever goes back, which on average one call goes back to 911 because it escalated again. So we're really able to <clears throat> resolve a lot of these. And so once you build that trust, law enforcement doesn't want to go to those types of calls. And there's so many things that would qualify under a crisis. Um, I'll get in the weeds. I gotta be careful. Um, there, there's so many different ways that a crisis system, a well-functioning crisis system could take over calls from law enforcement. And so the work that we're doing now is finding all of those calls. And then we have some really good partners that are really progressive in their thinking um, in Arizona that are willing to take risks and, and try these things out and push the, push the barriers um, to make sure that, um, that this help happens, right? And that we get the right person. It's like the right tool for the right job. Um, let's get them involved. Um, so, you know, it, it's been funny to me that the real barriers, when I stepped into this, and I think a lot of people would probably assume this, the barriers are not the law enforcement, um, the, the cops. The cops are like, no, 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 we're good, do this. As long as we're safe, do this. Um, it's like a lot of legal departments. It's a lot of like contractual things that, uh, contract contracting departments. It's a lot of bureaucrats that don't understand it. Honestly, some data, sometimes it's data people that are like collecting aggregate data for the city and they're like, they put pauses on things because they want to get the data thing worked out. And it's like, we need to start this. So though it's really been interesting to me that it's not law enforcement that is resistant. There are some places where they are. Um, but in general, everyone's like, no, 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 we get it. Like, let's do this. And then, you know, one person has a, is a stick in the mud and then can try to derail things. Um, so it's, it's been very interesting work. It's, it's all the liability because, and like, that's the deficit in our system as a whole is people are working on a liability mindset of yes. what's my potential for, be, for being sued versus what's my potential for care. Right. Um, we're having a similar situation with a contract that it's like, I have to have all of these things to be able to provide services, but you're in desperate need of services. You're in so much need. You're begging people, right. but you're creating this extreme barrier for me to be able to deliver that. And there's, yeah. there's compromises that would keep everybody safe. There is, there are options that would allow us to do the work and keep you safe. And it sounds like this is that exact thing. And I think it's interesting. I would have thought the biggest hurdle is human trusting calling the line versus police or the bureaucracy trusting that the line is going to do what it says it'll do. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he's putting in the chat. Everyone except Alyssa needs to ask more questions. We don't want to listen to it anymore. Part, part of my goal is to get Courtney to talk more today. So that was, it's well, been a long standing goal. I mean, I, I think that. that, I think that like what is probably why I think I'm being so quiet is not only is this a topic that I admittedly don't know very much about, but your perspective really flies in the face of what I think tends to be publicized most, right? So I think what Alyssa yes. was getting at in terms of what is public perception of um, police involvement in, in these types of mental health crises, being able to hear from someone who not only has the training in mental health, but is working within this actual system and is saying, sure, just like in any profession, there are some bad eggs. There are people who have handled this poorly. There have been folks who have gotten themselves involved when they know that there are other options, and yet they still felt compelled to get involved. Um, I think it's just, it's nice to hear that you don't have any agenda other than to bring awareness to resources that exist. And I think that that really yeah. validates another narrative that is often not not shared. Yeah, it you know, and there's other things that are weird. Like everyone really talks about violence and use of force, right? And so I've had to dive into that for a number of different things. But, you know, the, 
the amount of times that a law enforcement officer shoots someone with mental health condition is extremely, extremely rare. If you look at how many inter like interactions they have with the public, how many calls they go out, right? Like, you know, in Phoenix, it's like millions and millions of calls every year. Um, and the, 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 there's like a lot of focus on that violence, but it's almost impossible statistically to show that if you train officers better or that you have co-response units or you have just a crisis system, that it's going to reduce violence, right? You just can't. It's just such a small, like statistically, it's so small. And I never thought about that. I'm like, we got to stop the violence. Like, how do we stop the violence? And it's like, yeah, we do need to do that. We do need to work on that. But it's such a, it's such a rare thing that, um, that it actually happens and that you can say it was, um, specifically because of mental health that this, you know, went sideways and that the officer had better training or whatever. It's just so, it's so rare um, and small. So yeah, I know we're, we're walking into like charged waters for sure, but I think we have to have these conversations. And I think they're, the, one of the things really inspiring is that there is a way forward. We are doing it right now and freaking almost everyone's on board with it. So, you know, um, outside of mental health, I don't feel like I can speak to that. And I, it, you know, I don't have an expertise in, in what that looks like with the interaction with law enforcement. So I can't speak to that. But um, yeah, it, there, there is a lot of hope and there is a lot of progress being made. Is there a directory where, or a place where all of the information state by state, county by county is aggregated so people can look in one place to be able to find out, does my area have resources like these? If so, what is the number that I call or, or how do I access it? Is, is that a thing? Well, the, the really beautiful part of uh, the 988 system is just on 988 and you're going to get someone that can help you, um, you know, figure those things out. Right. Um, so so like they, they would be able to identify, okay, if you're in Alaska and you, you, mm -hmm. they've determined the best course of action right now is something like a mobile crisis unit. They would be able to then contact in your area, what those immediate acute supports would be yeah i don't think i don't think there's like a straight up samsa probably has a database like that but there's a lot of google that goes into this like when we're, when we're right. on the phone there's a lot of google that goes into it but when you know the keywords to ask for like you know mct for mobile crisis team is a pretty universal um, name or just mt for mobile team okay. um, cmt seems to be the main one but like if you know what to look for because we do this all day we're we know the keywords to hit like urgent response center or like urgent uh gotcha you know psychiatric facility so you're, you're going to know those things to look for um okay. but that's kind of the beauty here is you got 988 just call 988 and, and let us you know do our portion of it right yeah one of one of the biggest uh concerns i guess or criticisms that i've heard about 988 is the whether it's real or not, the connection or the link between 988 and 911 or other mm -hmm. government agencies and the general feeling of unsafeness, if that's sure. even a word, that, that, that is attached to those things. Um, and the, the biggest criticism that I have heard uh, personally, which I'll put a disclaimer here. Like I haven't really done a ton of research, but the biggest thing that I've heard about is this whole like non-consent um, response services, mm -hmm. I guess. So that like, if there is, if it is deemed that there is a higher level of need, um, I guess like EMS or law enforcement or whatever could be dispatched to that person without um, their permission, I guess. Um, yeah. But what I'm hearing from you, Matthew, it sounded like you said, I think you said 1%, something very, very small percentage of calls that cannot be resolved 
via the crisis line alone. Um, and that really stood out to me because that would be a, res- a response. That would be an answer to this concern that, you know, if you call this hotline, you call this number, you're talking about a crisis is something big that's going on for you. And then to maybe have other agencies show up, um, that would be very jarring and, and Mm -hmm. harmful, particularly for marginalized, um, individuals. And so could you speak a little bit to that, the prevalence, I guess, which again, judging from what you said in terms of how many, the percentage of calls that, that cannot be resolved via the crisis line only, but could you speak to just maybe how integrated or how connected or how um, enmeshed, I guess, the 988 system is with other agencies such as law enforcement or EMS or 911 or so on. All of it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a really good question. So uh, let me pose a hypothetical to you. You guys are crisis call takers, right? You get someone that calls in. This person is um, in a very high risk situation. They're suicidal with a gun in their hand. Okay. They will not work with you to reduce, like I said, reduce access to lethal means. They won't put the gun down. They're going to imminently take their life. Right. Or, um, so you're in that situation. Imagine you're in that situation. And guess what? We don't have mobile teams. I've tried everything I can over the phone with all my training. And there is a button to hit that will get somebody out there that's trained to reduce violence, right? They are trained to stop violence. And that's the only option you have. That's the majority of the country. That's what you're looking at. You, you don't have mobile teams. You don't have these drop-off facilities. And, and when you're working with someone that is when we talk about, I'll just throw a pitch out there. Uh, there's a book called Why People Die by Suicide. It's by Dr. Thomas Joyner. He's out of um, Florida University. I think it's Florida State University. Um, hopefully the, the suicide uh, prevention nurse don't come after me. Um, his book's incredible. It's a very short read and it really helps you. But when someone's in the place where they're right at the place where they, they want to hurt themselves, um, your, your thinking has become so narrow and so hyper fixated on this one thing that you might not be in a place where you can make an informed decision or recognize hazards or to be, you know, I guess, top down as a way of thinking about it. And so, you know, you as a clinician, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, you know what, they're, they're suicidal, high risk, they're going to die. I'm not going to call police because I don't, I don't think that's the best intervention or do you make that choice? And that's kind of what crisis workers across the country are, are, are faced with. Now, my understanding of the statistics of uh, a place that doesn't have mobile teams is that 988 can, in general, resolve about 80 or 90% of calls um, without you know, sending law enforcement out or first responders. Um, but sometimes it's the only chance choice that you have to get somebody out there. And then you, know, you express to the law enforcement, this person has a mental health condition, um, this person needs advanced treatment. We need to get them somewhere to get help. And typically the, the, the police or the ambulance will know um, to do um, to do that, um, to take them to a hospital or something like that. But yeah, it, it does get problematic because the law enforcement isn't trained for that, right? They are not trained in the same way um, that a mobile team would be. So yeah, it's problematic for a number of different reasons. Um, and yeah, so hopefully that kind of uh, thought process helps like understand that because we absolutely do not want to call the police we know it's problematic but when we're sitting there like someone's gonna die if i don't do something that's when you use that 
So the times where someone is going to, that we're going to use uh, first responders, if someone's already attempted to hurt themselves, we obviously have to send somebody out. We can't just let somebody bleed or like overdose on pills. We have to send somebody out. Um, and then um, if, when we looked at that risk assessment at the beginning, it's you have suicidal thoughts or homicidal thoughts, mean, intent, and plan, right? So I'm intending to kill myself right now with this gun that's in my hand. Now we're at the level, and, and they won't engage, and they won't let us de-escalate, or they, they, maybe they don't even have the ability because they're in such fight-or-flight response to get de-escalated. That's when we have to, like, push that button. And we don't like to. For our crisis line, it's actually, for all the calls that come in, uh, because the majority don't come from law enforcement or 911s, um, it's it's like 0.4% of calls that we have to call 911 on, and a big chunk of those are someone is overdosed already or, like, they call us and they're like actively beating the crap out of each other. So a big chunk of that 0.4% are those two things. Um, it's very rare. And then for us, like one of the things we do is if we have to call law enforcement, we automatically dispatch a mobile team as well. So we tell the cops like, hey, you got to get there faster because your response time is three to five minutes. Ours is 30 to an hour. Um, we are sending a team right now. We're expediting a team to get out there. Can you just go make sure they're safe and then let them know that we're going to come out? Um, other times we'll stay on the phone with them and then when the law enforcement gets there, we can say, can you please hand the phone to the cop and explain to the cop what's going on. So that's kind of the, um, that's kind of the choice that you're, 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 you're stuck with, right? Like that's the only tool that we have. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the end of that part. (laughs) And it's sort of like, what's the start? Like if we don't, everything you're saying, it's a good start, right? We know where we want to go, but in these places that don't have mobile units, if we don't start somewhere, we're never going to reach the destination that we're going to. We're beginning with the end in mind. We're planting those seeds of what we want this to look like. Not everyone's bought in and not everyone's paying for that financing. So we have to start somewhere. I think sometimes society right now gets so lost and well, it's not the biggest, longest term answer. So therefore it's all or nothing. No, it's bad. And isn't the start, right? Saving 99.6% of people from interacting with law enforcement in that moment versus the 0.4% that have to call. Isn't that better? Like, I know you're going to say yes, but for people listening, like all of these things in the conversations we have on this podcast all the time of those tough conversations, starting and moving in that trajectory, is yeah. the critical point. We well, know think about it. Like, how hard is it to pass a law in Congress and get the president to sign it? You know what I mean? Like, it, it was, <laughs> I think it was signed in 2016 or 2017. So, like, Trump had to sign the bill. Um, it might have been Obama. But anyway, like, there were still lots of people. It's very contentious to pass any law in Congress right now. So, the fact that that's done and that was recognized and it was, mm-hmm. I think it was a strong majority that voted for um is is really incredible it's like so we are seeing this sea change really quickly and i Mm -hmm. think as it it is a fair um critique of the system we shouldn't have to call law enforcement except in that very like we do with 0.4 percent but when you don't have those tools you're you're kind of stuck so this is going to kind of force that conversation to happen and say why don't we have you know so that's that's where that it starts to build it up I want to say great question, but then I feel like I'm at one of my trainings. It's like, great question. <laughs> or on a panel, the coffee yeah. therapy panel. Tell me it was a good question. I like to hear it. <laughs> it makes me it makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> I need that validation. I, I think there's me. undertones to your comments, and I'm not responding to them. <laughs>
Wise choice. Wise choice. Yeah. So I think like we've talked a lot about like 988 people can call for resources and and some of the other resources that are out there and ways that maybe our listeners can make a difference in their city their state maybe you know start making some big changes here but let me ask you I think this is an important topic to bring up you know as we kind of come to a close here like what can we all do if we are, you know, deep in this moment where we are with someone who is experiencing a crisis or we are with someone who maybe they they called us and they're actively, you know, talking about suicide? Like, what can we do to support people who are in these situations? Yeah, great question. I think that... Um you know, everyone on this call and, and probably the majority of the people listening to it are helping professionals, right? So we do have a strong knowledge base of how to listen and how to do reflective uh, discussions, you know? Um, and so I think the main core of it, um, if you're in any place other than you're tackling someone and trying to pull a knife away from them, which I don't recommend any of you guys do, uh, no one on this phone call should do that. But if you're not actively trying to restrain somebody, um, like the, the main thing is helping them feel supported and heard. And so that's really going in kind of like courageously and talking about these things. There's a lot of stigma about suicide, but um, I'll just ramble through a couple of the things. Every single time, almost every single time I've just asked someone if they're feeling suicidal, there's almost like a relief from them that someone's comfortable talking about that thing because there's so much taboo about it and they, they haven't felt like anyone's listening for so long. So when you just sit there and you're open about it and say, I encourage everyone to, to ask this a lot. If someone's really having a rough time and you're really scared or concerned about them, like, hey, just I want to check in. I care about you. I want to make sure you're safe. Like, have you had any thoughts about hurting or killing yourself? Um, typically, they haven't had anyone even ask that question. It's really sad, right? And they've been sitting there struggling. And, you know, when we look at a lot of times when people um, die from suicide, there was a long process that led to that, right? Um, it typically starts with feeling like overwhelmed or depressed, right? And we all feel that all the time. So that's a common human experience. And then if something ha- if that feels like it's happening for a long period of time, you start to think of ways to reduce that and try to find ways out of that. So like, you know, you're really stressed out at work, um, quitting your job can be something that people like think about, right? Um, so you're, you're slowly kind of working towards that. And so there's, there's lots of times where someone could have like talked to you about it, um, that you could have like, you know, had a, an impact on that. And so just asking directly is one of the most important things and just showing up and listening. Don't talk over them. Don't give them advice. Um, I always say, if you guys have seen the video, it's not about the nail. Oh my God. Okay. No. Everyone listen to this podcast. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> we're and then you, you all of us, we're all gonna watch. It's not about the nail right now. It's one of the best things I've ever seen on on how to listen. Um, but you really want to listen. You want to empathize. Like you know, you guys are all doing it with like verbal reinforcers. Like mm-hmm. like I'm listening to you. I care what you're saying. I'm responding to you reflecting back to what's happening and just really just showing up but don't say like oh um don't do anything to invalidate so saying like oh you'll get over it oh it's not that bad other people have it worse oh have you thought about just you know feeling like thinking better or whatever there's lots of memes about that one like if you were just tried feeling better um you know it's it's really just about being there and open in that moment and like courageous and, and being like boldly asking those questions and once someone feels like someone cares, that's when you can start looking at what's the next step. Like, do we need to get 98 on the line? Um, do we need to take them to a facility? Those sorts of things. Oh, you already found that recording on top of it. Um, 
like that's that's the most important thing asking directly and clearly and letting them know that you care don't just say like you're feeling suicidal and they're like mm, and you're like okay they didn't say yes let's walk away um you know in, in my sense i would say like that sounded like there was some ambivalence there can you tell me like where that ambivalence came from um and just ask them like how did you get here like what what's led you to feel like this um and so once you open that conversation they feel like someone cares um that's when that really beautiful moment can happen um that i keep talking about i should like, name that moment something i don't know anyway there you go <laughs> i think that that's so it. that's so concrete and yes right now with where kind of the social needle continues to sort of point we're we're constantly trying to find that balance between being bold like you're saying and calling something what it is but also being really sensitive to how someone is feeling and the condition that they find themselves in so i think it's really helpful to hear that particularly when we're talking about crisis intervention and suicide in particular being able to say that really big word like you're saying and recognize our own discomfort with it but Really recognizing yes, that our own discomfort isn't what matters right now. We're here to support yes, that person's correct. vast discomfort. I, I really appreciate that perspective because I don't know that I would have intuitively gone in that direction. So that really helped no, me scary. to be more supportive. It's freaking scary when someone tells you they want to die. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it is. And you nailed, you nailed it on the head. Like us as clinicians, we need to show up and we can't look, you know, they feel like you're, you don't care or that you're scared. That's going to reinforce the stigma that they right. can't talk about it. Because even even my mental health, <laughs> you know, professional that's helping me is scared to talk about this. Right. Um, and then you know when we talk about like our own biases and stuff like that, that's one that I don't think we think about. Right. We think about like racial or like class or you know gender. We don't think about that one, which is we're scared of that. We have implicit bias about suicide that's been built up over hundreds and thousands of years. Yes. Um, and I just wanted to say these two things because I forgot. There's a myth that if you ask someone if they're suicidal, that you're going to put the idea in their head. Um, when someone's feeling suicidal, they are overriding their instinctual guide to stay alive, right? It's not an easy thing to get there. There are situations like where it can kind of come on suddenly. Like if you look at like ancient Japan and, and you know, if you lost a battle, you would take your own life like at that moment because you lost a battle. That's, that's important. That's not normal. Um, but asking them if they're feeling suicidal is not going to put the idea in their head. Um, and what's the other one? Oh, God. I guess it's the big one. Oh, it's not illegal to think about suicide or to die from suicide. It's not. So everyone says, that's why we, you guys have been really great about the wording that you use. But we don't say commit suicide because what is a commitment? Commitment is being forced into jail, right? Or a locked facility that's not necessarily there. You're not committing anything. You're going through a very difficult time in your life. And you're looking for a way to kind of ease suffering, right? right. So that those kind of things. Yeah. Those are my myths. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 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 I mean, Matthew, I think we're just so grateful to have you here and to share these things. I was vigorously taking notes. So <laughs> we can put some of those things in the show notes, I think, for people of when they're going, what do I say? Mm -hmm. if, if they Google it and find this episode, awesome. And they'll have those phrases. I think just the compassion, passion, and care that you have for the work you do is truly contagious and I think vital to human existence. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, really grateful 
to have you here and a great follow-up to listeners who listen to our mental health and neurodiversity podcast or children not small adults um, really focused on pediatric mental health and neurodiversity mental health and mentions death by suicide Um, this is a great strategy for how do we stop that and how do we intervene and who do we call so i'm incredibly grateful to have you here i texted my employee who inspired the um neurodiversity and mental health episode and said we're recording right now and it's so incredible and you know this is going to help so many people it is and yeah I'm just it's so fun. grateful it's exciting fun the wrong word but it's it's very exciting for me I, sure. it's fun for me <laughs> not people wanting to die but no. it's fun to do this type of work yeah no i totally know what you mean it's fun to share and hopefully change people's lives and change the world that's that should be fun. Yes, that's vital. That's to a good way of putting nature. it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Matthew, if people um, want to find you, yes, are you on find social me? media? Yeah. Um, I don't use that as a platform for uh, this type of work. So what is, I don't, what is, I don't have like a, what is the best way if someone wanted to just pick your brain and they were really interested in sort of your origin story, how you how you have become what you have become. Are you comfortable with people contacting you or can you recommend resources or places that they can um, look at instead? Um, You're talking more specifically about the career stuff or like the consulting stuff or more about how to learn how to help people feeling suicidal? I, I think it could probably be a little bit of everything. I, I don't know that okay. I can anticipate. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say that... Um, uh, my LinkedIn is totally fine. So my name is Matthew Moody. Um, I, mean, I don't know if there's like another way of breaking it down. I can put your LinkedIn in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Yeah, do that. That's totally fine. Um, great idea, Courtney. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally happy to help. I'm totally happy to talk about this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's a way that I can um, I can help that. Is LinkedIn's a good one. Great. Well, thank you so much, Matthew, for being here. Uh, if you're a listener of the podcast, I think you know how we usually close out our episodes. It's thank you all for listening. <laughs> and we say bye. Isn't there something about a burrito or something, too? <laughs> a burrito? I thought I got a burrito coming on the show. No. Oh, oh, oh. Matthew wants, <laughs> wants a burrito. Oh, yeah. We'll see if we can get sponsored by Chipotle. Holla, Chipotle. Hey. There we go. Um, we'll that. get Matthew a Chipotle burrito. <laughs> okay, don't hang up on me because we're going to watch this video. Oh, for sure. Okay. When I stop the recording, don't worry. You're still here. <laughs> okay, good. I'll link that in the show notes to listeners. It's not the nail, right? Um, not about not the a, nail. It's not, about, it's the not nail. about the nail. It'll be in the show notes if you want to watch. Oh my god! I'm so excited for you guys to see this. Can you? Can you? Can we watch a thing together? Uh, we could try. I'll see what I could do. I'll set up a freaking Teams meeting right now, and we can do this. I love it. <laughs> Listeners get the back behind the scenes. <laughs> well, we're gonna go watch this. If you didn't pause when Matthew told you to, you go watch it right now, and we'll catch you next time on Coffee and Therapy. But for now, bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Coffee and Thera Tea. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Coffee and Thera Tea. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherapy at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.